sung about worshiping vain substitutes for God and then seeing God with your eyes. I hope today's passage, Isaiah 40, will help us to do that. Um, We've had a great week together as a church. At least 26 of the congregation were together for family camp, and uh, that was a delight. Uh, There was a last-minute special from the camp, half off, and we had so many of you clear your calendars and join us. Um, We've always sponsored... Uh, family camp for $150 per adult, child, grandchild that can come. Some of you, uh, it's an opportunity for grandparents to bring grandchildren to camp for a week in the Word of God. Um, I don't know how the math works out. 26 people uh, came and we, our, our bill was only $2,400 at the camp office, but however it worked out, uh, it, it, it was a, a delightful week. And so many came when that price was changed that I almost wonder if we don't want to support our camp more by making our scholarship more and perhaps more could come. And, um, and that's something that uh, I think we should consider as a church family. We could just be sending support to a Christian camp, and, uh, but I like sending it in the form of scholarships and helping people to make it very, very uh, doable. And so anyway, but 26 of us together, fellowshipping in the Word of God, it was a delightful week. Um, right now we're in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, verses 9 through 31, a little bit longer passage, but it won't take too long to go through, I don't think. Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 31. Uh, every once in a while, a passage like this addresses one of the key components in our church's purpose statement. Today, it's waiting on God, and uh, I, so I just want to bring up the purpose statement for those of you who are new. Uh, our purpose statement and our mission statement as a church, same thing, and purpose statement for life, mission statement in life, what you should be doing, same thing. Um, Jesus was asked, what are the great commandments? He said, love God and love your neighbor. So we have on top, love God. On the bottom, love your neighbor. Uh, We've divided that into two categories, loving your neighbor, loving believers, because there's an emphasis in the New Testament on loving the brethren, enduring, forgiving, forbearing, serving the brethren. Uh, There's also a mandate to outreach out to the lost. Uh, But we do read from left to right, and we put the priority on loving Uh, believers in unity, and then the mandate as well to love the lost in outreach. And uh, in terms of, we break this down a little bit further, and, you know, we we talk about how do we love God? We pursue Him. How do you pursue God? Right here. He He has revealed Himself in a complete word, and this is our authority. This is where we pursue God in truth. We pray to God because He likes to be asked. When you're having problems, when you have needs, when you're just simply making decisions, God wants you to pray to Him. And so we pray to God. We praise God because there's no greater delight. If you love the Vikings, you probably love talking about Kirk Cousins. Okay, that's just because you love praising the things you love. We love praising God. When our heart's right, there is no greater joy than to praise God. And then finally, wait on God. Whatever we do here as a church... We want it to be evident at the end of the day that it's not because we are great people, it's because we serve a great God and that He has been working uh, among us. So let's talk today about waiting on God. What does that mean? Isaiah 40 is going to be helpful. Uh, It's helping us with our ideas and our thoughts about God. Ancient man was inclined to think that God was one of many gods, part of a pantheon of gods. Modern man thinks God is a fabrication of ancient man. That it's just an invention. Religion is just an invention. We as modern believers are products of our culture. And we hold inadequate views about God. Even as Christians, our views are 
inadequate. We don't quite measure up to what the Bible tells us God is like in our perception of Him. So today we'll learn about the power of God and the wisdom of God and waiting and hoping in God. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 9. O go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountain in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. Or, who, or, or, or he, who is, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today, I pray that you'd help us to have a good view of who you are. Help us to have an adequate view of who you are and how that relates to our daily walk. 
Father, you are a mighty God. You are over all the universe. But God, help that truth not to cause us to think that you don't care about us individually, each one, intimately, every minute of the day. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, for your awareness and concern for us. Help us to learn about this today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jason Jones, if you would please check my uh, HVAC for me and maybe drop it one degree at least. All right. Um, Let's see. We're going to be studying here together, uh, starting in verse number 9. God comes in power, bringing reward and comfort with him. Verse number 9. The Bible says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. That may not mean what we think. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Um, As we uh, look today at God's reward and his comfort at God coming, it says his reward is with him. Um, That is not stuff for us. Um, This is God coming in power as a a victorious king. Uh, In in verse number 9, it it says, um, verse number 10, uh, Behold, your God comes with might. His arm rules for him. That's talking about the strength of God in defeating his enemies. His reward is with him. That's not lots of stuff for us. That, uh, that would be the spoils of war. That would be the booty that he has gotten as the king of the universe who has defeated all of his enemy. His reward is with him, and it says his recompense is before him. His, his payback, all that he has won, is sitting there before him. He is coming as a victorious king. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Well, look at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. We have a victorious God. He is victor over the universe. And he immediately turns that into shepherding you with care, shepherding you with love. This is what the king of the universe looks like. This is how he behaves. Now, this is the deliverance that Judah wants, that Isaiah wants for the nation of Judah. Isaiah is an old man. He is a prophet. And his last prophecies deal with uh, uh, the exile to Babylon. Uh, Isaiah is not going to live to see that. But he is prophesying for Israel, behold, your God is coming. He is going to be victorious at the end of the day. And he is bringing his reward with him. And he is coming to shepherd you and care for you. Now, he will not even live to see the exile, but he is prophesying for those who are going to go through the exile. I just want you to stop and imagine, uh, how long does other prophecies say this exile was going to last? Do you recall? Seventy years. So you're my age, 58 years old, and you just went into exile, and you know this thing's going to last 70 years. You know you're not going to live to see the end of it when God delivers his people and comforts them. I am still to live in light of these prophecies, knowing that my life will die in exile. I am still to know that my God is on the throne, that all of world history is going somewhere. God will deliver Judah from exile in Babylon, and he will deliver Judah at the end times, and there will be a literal kingdom on earth, 
At that time, I'll be resurrected. At that time, all will be made right in my life. I am to live in light of these prophecies, even if I were a 57-year-old man about to die in exile before the 70 years was up. God is the conqueror, and he is going to reward his children. And he is incom- the next point we have here is that he is incomprehensibly above human thought and human power in verses 12 through 17. Uh, Verse 12 begins with a question, and questions are used to structure this text. Look at verse number 12, for instance. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of earth with a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has done this? This is a rhetorical question. And there's only one right answer. It's God Almighty. Uh, Look at verse number 18. You're going to have another rhetorical question. This this whole chapter is a bit of an argument that that is led by these questions. Uh, Verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Answer? None. Uh, Look at verse number uh, 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? That's like asking your child, um, did I not tell you to take out the trash this morning? That's a rhetorical question. There's only one right answer. Yes, I told you to take out the trash, right? Okay, so the Bible is telling us to remember things we already know in in verse number 21. Look at verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? God asks this. Rhetorical question. The answer is no one. And then finally, just see where we're going to in the structure of today's text. Uh, Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Or my right hand, my right is disregarded by my God? Uh, So so that's the final rhetorical question. Uh, Given that there is nobody like God, given that he has made the universe, that he upholds it all the time, uh, why do you say that God can't see you? That God can't pay attention to you? That that your cause is disregarded by God. How can you say that? That's where the argument is going today. And then we'll end with that admonition that we learn to wait on the Lord and have our strength renewed. So um, looking again, verse number 12, you have the rhetorical question. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? In antiquities, uh, uh, the gods were thought to be in this panel of gods and they would debate and argue and fight. Uh, And they would counsel one another. Who counsels God? The answer, no one. Whom did he consult or who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. So as Isaiah talks here, he says, there's nobody who instructs our God. Our God is all wise. He's the one who brings wisdom. He's the one who brings truth and goodness to the earth in his revelation. The nations, those are like a drop in the bucket. They're like dust on the scales. Now, you've got to picture yourself in a, in a, in a market in antiquities, uh, uh, even, even more mundane than our farmer's market. This is just where you'd go to buy stuff. And so imagine I'm in the market, and, and I'm getting a five-gallon pail of milk. And you take it from your nice bucket into my home bucket, and you dump five gallons of milk into my bucket. And as you do so, there's a drop that adheres to the bottom corner of of your bucket. There's a drop. You just measured out five gallons. There's a drop left in your bucket. Does anyone care? Do we stop and say, oh, wait, 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 merchant, there's a drop of milk. See if you can't pound a couple more times to get that drop of milk into my five gallons. Nobody does that. 
You've got dust on the scale. You're measuring out. You've got a gunny sack, and you've got 100 pounds of grain. And as you're measuring out grain all day, your scale's getting dust on it. And, and, and as you measure out my 100 pounds, I'm like, you know what? Your scale's looking kind of dusty today. Does anybody care? Uh, nobody cares about a bit of dust on the scale. Uh, so so um, look at this verse again. Um, uh, the, where it says, verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. What do you do when fine dust is in your way? Whew. Look at that. My pen even responded. <laughs> um, you, just, whew, you just blow it off. That's what God does to the nations. Verse number 16 says, Lebanon will not suffice for fuel. Do you remember the cedars of Lebanon, how epic the cedars of Lebanon are? If you were to take all of, the, all of the nation of Lebanon, all of its trees, you would not have enough fuel to burn sacrifices that would be worthy enough for our God. Verse 16, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are all accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Uh, you know, I don't know how much we esteem our governmental leaders. I hope you love them and pray for them and respect them as the Bible commands you to. But generally in society, I don't know that most people in society have as much esteem for leaders of various nations as the leaders have for themselves. When the leaders get together, uh, it's red carpet treatment. I mean, it's state dinners. And they they have a great deal of respect for themselves as leaders. And God said, all the nations, all the pomp, all the circumstance, all the military industrial complex, it's all nothing. In fact, it is less than nothing and emptiness. Now, if you have less than nothing, what do you have? It's one thing to have nothing, but it's, less, it's, it's worse to have less than nothing. That means you are in debt. That means you are a liability. So all of this power of world governments, it's not just nothing. It is less than nothing in the presence of our God. When you have less than nothing, you are in trouble. Psalm 50 talks about how God turns the table on who needs what. You know, we, we offer, we have a, a generous offering every week here, and, and I'm thankful as pastor. But I would never want to represent the offering as God needs your money. Uh, likewise, when there were whole burnt offerings and you would offer an entire ox, uh, that's a lot of money, and, and, and you're offering this as a whole burnt offering, You are not fulfilling any neediness of God when you offer that. You are invited to worship Him, to honor Him, to spend your life, to spend your wealth worshiping Him and showing that He is truly glorious. That's the exchange, not that God has needs. And so I love Psalm 50. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. God said, if I were hungry, he continues, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Do I eat cows? God said. The answer to that rhetorical question is no. And he concludes with this, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. God says, I want your heart. I want you to be thankful to me. Further, he continues, and perform your vows to the Most High. I want you to honor me. And he further continues, and he says, and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. God said, you want to talk about neediness? I don't need your sacrifices. 
If I were hungry, I would not tell you. That's, just, that's not how this works. But here's how it does work. I want you to be thankful in your heart. I want you to be honorable as you walk before me. And in your day of neediness, I want you to call out to me and let me answer you. Let me provide for you and you can glorify me that way. And talk about how God has provided for me in this lifetime. That's the transaction God wants. So for all of the offerings that we bring, it's a big deal to us. I, as a pastor, I'm I'm grateful that the only worries I ever have here financially in the past 10 or 15 years at Cornerstone is, are we being good stewards of the generosity of God? There, otherwise, there aren't money worries here. And I've just been so thankful to God for that. But do not ever let us think that God needs our offerings. It is our delight to give out of faith. It's probably the biggest place where the rubber meets the road. I, if you go to North Minneapolis and share the gospel... Okay, now that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Okay, so if you're doing that, that's great. If you go to, to foreign countries where life is dangerous and tuberculosis and other things are a threat, um, that is dangerous. The rubber kind of meets the road there. But for most of us, we don't go to North Minneapolis. We don't go overseas. And probably the most real place where we spend our lives is as we honor God in helping the poor, in, in uh, giving offerings and being faithful that way. But just understand, that's our opportunity. It's not God's need. Verse 17, we can be so impressed again with our dignitaries. All the nations are as nothing before him, counted as less than emptiness. As I said, that that phrase, less than emptiness. If you have something that you value without God in it, you've got a liability in your hands. If you've got something where you're like, you know what, I'm not sure God's so pleased about this, but I'm going to go get this. You now have a liability on your hands. You have less than nothing because it is not from God. What are the types of things that you might have? Uh, uh, Sexual pleasures that are not ordained by God. If you're taking unto yourself sexual pleasures that God has not ordained, you have less than nothing. You have got a liability on your hands. Love of money. It's not money that is the root of all evil. It's necessary to function, but the love of money. If you have money because you love money, you've got less than nothing. You've got a liability. Drugs, alcohol, material possessions. Now, God blesses us with many nice things in life, and there are many things that I hope you have in your life, and you're like, I don't deserve this, praise God. I'm so delighted to have this. It's a joy. I take it as a gift from him. But if you've got stuff, if you're accumulating stuff, and you're like, yeah, this is getting a little out of hand. I know it, but I want more. You've got less than nothing. You've got a liability on your hands. We need to see the beauty of God. We need to serve God and worship him. Make our life about Jesus Christ and and tend our money and tend our time and our opportunity, our interests. Even our interest in human sexuality, we, we are to tend all of that as a steward of God. We have been given desires by God. They're good desires in His plan. Whether it's your sexuality or your finances, you will report to God for what you have done. He owns all of it, and you are to manage it like a steward. Uh, as we continue here, point number three, the, co- the comparisons of the incomparability of God begin with these rhetorical questions to which there can only be one answer. Verse number 18, to whom will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? 
no one. I mean, there's just, there's just no other possible answer here. And, and just read through verse number 19. We deal with this section on idols. Uh, an idol is suggested. Will you compare God to an idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot and seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So again, verse 18, we have that rhetorical question that only a wise guy would mess up. And idols are suggested in verse number 19. Are you going to compare God to idols? In verse 20, uh, verse 19, they're, 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 they're fashioned, they're crafted. You see the reference to silver chains in verse number 19? The silver chains start to hold that idol up so it doesn't fall over. If you've got an idol that can't stand upright, if it keeps falling over, it's an embarrassment to you who fashioned it, and it's an embarrassment to the God himself because he can't stand on his own. So we put silver chains on idols so they don't fall over. Rather ridiculous picture. Uh, Look at verse number 20. He is too impoverished. uh, Goes out and finds some wood. And, uh, you know, good wood, as good as he can find that won't rot. And then he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol. So he's going to hire somebody to carve this wood. That's all he can afford is go find a piece of wood. But I will at least hire a craftsman, and that craftsman will, will fashion for me an idol. And, and uh, once again, it, it says at the end of verse number 20, to set up an idol that will not move. <laughs> again, you don't want that idol falling over. It's very embarrassing when your God falls over and can't even stand upright on the shelf. The comparison to this is our God. Look at verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Those are rhetorical questions. You all know this. Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings the princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. So here's a picture from ancient man, what ancient man might have seen when it talks about the circle of the earth. It might have been thinking of the canopy of the sky as some kind of a globe and and God is up here. Man is down here. God is inaccessible, unreachable. He dwells on high. Not only do you not uh, affix him to the shelf so he doesn't fall over, not only do you not have to stand him up, you can't even reach him. Uh, He is so far above and beyond us, above and beyond his creation. And so somewhere we need to stop and talk about the transcendence of God. Uh, God is not captive to this world. He is above it. He is everywhere. Uh, you know, uh, so people will ask, is God in this, the wood of this pulpit? God is everywhere, but when I knock on the wood, I'm not knocking on God. He is everywhere. The, the, the idea is I can't hide anywhere in creation, including in this pulpit. I can't hide anywhere without him knowing, seeing, and being there. But he is not captive to anything. Uh, He is above it all. He is transcendent. If you want to know where God is, he is above the circle of the earth, according to this passage. He sits above it. He holds it in his hands. He creates. He rules. God is no idol. He is above all idols. Idols are here ridiculed. Ancient man fashioned the idols out of metal or out of high-quality wood. We don't do that, do we? Our idols are money, materialism, Self, flesh, 
We go to great lengths to make our idols today. Or we hire craftsmen to make our idols for us today. And these idols will not deliver you from the hour of cancer. They will not deliver you from the hour of dementia. They will not deliver you from death. In point of fact, idols may even hasten our death. If food is your idol, you know, it can hasten your death. If you are a glutton, Psalm 69, 22, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. How does your own table become a snare? Well, I can think of a lot of ways. We love, we love all kinds of decadence, but we also love flesh, flesh tone. If you're going through the clicker on the TV and there's flesh tone, what was that? You tend to pause because there is a temptation. What was that? If young people look in the mirror and catch a glimmer of strength and beauty of youth and they make that their idol, that idol will not stand. You can affix all the supports and you can try to maintain that youth for the rest of your life. The fact is you are going to weaken and age every day of your life until you finally go the way that mankind goes in this life. You will die. So we've got these consistencies between ancient idols and our idols today. Uh, Money, we work hard for money. Material, we work hard to accumulate our possessions. We hire craftsmen to make our possessions. Self, the idolatry of self, we work hard on self. Flesh, we go to great lengths to indulge our appetite for flesh. Ancient idols had no intrinsic value. As a God. Do you understand how the worshiper had to put the value in? They had to buy the gold and fashion the idol. They had to hire craftsmen to carve. They had to infuse the idol with value. Modern idols have no intrinsic value either. Money does not come to you and say, here I am to bless you. If you want money, you've got to work for it. Material goods do not come to you uh, to bless you. Self, the worship of self, that's a delusional God. You could go to the homeless row of any city and you will find proud men in the, as homeless people uh, who, who really think a lot of themselves and their independence and their choice to walk away from family and life and responsibility. And, and you talk to them, they are philosophers. They are wise. The pride of self. Self is a delusional God. And flesh. Uh, we have a real problem with pornography in our culture, and in our world today. It is so fake, it is so contrived by evil craftsmen who dedicate themselves to this work. And it does not satisfy, it is not an intrinsic value that will bless you. It is a lie. Flesh that doesn't belong to you in God's provision of marriage is a lie. It provides satisfaction, you are anything but satisfied. The appetite just grows more and more desperate. Young people, especially young people, because we give cell phones to young people at a very early age, and it is a very dangerous tool. Uh, Somebody was mentioning this week, at what age should a a young person have a, a smartphone? And, and the answer was, I thought was really good, this was at Family Camp, when they're old enough to see pornography. 
And, and you're like, well, you're never older. But the fact is, when you have a cell phone, things come up on that cell phone. And that young person needs to be spiritually mature enough to not go there. It's really tough. I, I want to give this advice, too. Um, pornography is a lie. The wicked men and women who appear in those photos and videos, they never, never look in the mirror and see what you're seeing. Never. It's a lie of editing. It's a lie of lighting. It's a lie of staging. It's not real life, young people. Let's have fun with this, okay? Let me just, let me just put an image in your mind that you will keep, okay? This is the Culver's Double Burger. This is the photo I saw last night, the literal photo from Culver's Corporation, okay? So last night at 9.20, I thought of this illustration, so I jumped out of the house, none of the family knew where I went, and I bought a Culver's Double Burger. I highly recommend them, by the way. Very good. Now, in my, in my uh, life, I have been a professional photographer since 1992. That was my craft before I became a pastor, and so I know what I'm doing with photography, so here's what I got last night, a double burger. <laughs> now, you're laughing. This is the best side. This is a few minutes after it's cooked. Can you see the glistening on the meat? Okay. Back there is the fluorescent lighting. I'm a photographer. I didn't photograph it under fluorescent lights. I even gave it the advantage of, of bringing it under directional lighting. Uh, you see the glimmer on the cheese? That, that ad, that's appealing, right? I mean, okay. But the point is that this, um, uh, this, is, this is what we call pornography, and this is the very same person looking in a mirror, okay? And, 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 and here's my concern for you young people. If, if, you, uh, if you develop an appetite for what's on the left here, uh, you are being thrown off scent as to what is truly appealing. By the way, as ugly as that hamburger left, I had no plans to eat. It was 9.20 at night after the time I'm supposed to eat. Oh, I couldn't resist it, all right? It was still good. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the, the reality, young people, is this. You want to be very careful not to let pornography send you off scent and develop for you expectations that are not real. Absolutely a lie, and when you get doing, done doing what you do with pornography, you are not satisfied. You are even desperate. You, you, have, you are less than empty. You have less than nothing. You have, you have this guilt and this shame. And that is because God ordained human sexuality in its place. And you need to be preparing your life to be a godly husband or a godly wife and praying that God is preparing for you a godly spouse. And you need to keep human sexuality in its place where it is an absolute delight and joy and a cause for thanksgiving and worship every time. The other way that it will throw you off sense is it will also create uh, unrealistic expectations of yourself and your own body. Uh, you were made beautifully. You were made uniquely. You were made to enjoy this aspect of human, um, human sexuality within the confines of marriage. And if you give your mind over to the pornography world, uh, you will even have unrealistic and uh, inappropriate, um, uh, an inappropriate lack of accepting who you are and who God made you to be. Uh, and so just at every level, uh, this is an idol. Uh, this is an idol that people, craftsmen, uh, they, 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 they set up and they lie 
and they leave you with less than nothing. They leave you in a state of liability. Contrast all this with God Almighty who brings his own intrinsic value to the table. He is the one who invented human sexuality. He is the one who invented the sexes. He is the one who invented marriage, and he gave it to you as a gift. He brought all of this. Nobody crafted marriage. God provided it. God is good. He is full of intrinsic value. He is at the center of it all. Now, for verse 26, I have a trivia question before we get to verse 26. How many stars are in the universe? And are there more stars in the universe, or are there more mosquitoes in the world? That's a trivia question. (laughs) Maybe. He's guessing mosquitoes. Um, I looked it up. The number of stars. I don't know the number of mosquitoes. I looked up the number of stars estimated by science. Um, 200 billion trillion. So not 2 trillion, 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. That's an incomprehensible number of stars, isn't it? Now look at verse number 26 with that in mind. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. So you're looking up at the skies. Who created these? Who brings out their host, referring to the stars, by number, calling them all by name? 200 billion trillion stars. God put each one in its place, calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Every star that God has allowed to exist, exists because he wants it there, and not one of the 200 billion trillion stars is missing. Now, I don't know how many mosquitoes there are, but how many men and women are there on the earth today? Maybe 8 billion? Compared to... 200 billion trillion stars. Do you see where this is going? If God knows the name and and sustains 200 billion trillion stars, how can you say he's not aware of you? How can you say he's too busy or distracted to care about you? You, you uh, Which is more valuable, a star or a human being? Think about it from a creation standpoint. Which was created in the image of God? What today bears the image of God? A star or a human being? A human being is far more precious than a star and far more rare. Eight billion versus 200 billion trillion. Far more rare. How can you say God doesn't care about you? If he knows the stars, he names the stars, they all exist. How can you say when you are made in the image of God and you are far more rare than a star, how can you say that he doesn't care? There's at least 16 billion trillion stars for you, for every one of us. Far more, far more common. You are uncommon. You cannot say God doesn't remember you, that he doesn't care. And that's where this is going in our last point. Considering all that is known about God, how can you doubt that he knows you and he can empower you to live for him? Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my God uh, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. If you want to know how much God knows about you, it's unsearchable. It's so vast. He gives power, verse 29, to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. 
Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall, be, shall fall exhausted, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So the two doubts about God that we see in verse number 27 are first that, number one, he cannot see. He doesn't pay attention to my concerns. Uh, Second, he doesn't answer my prayers. Why do you say, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Why do you say that? that? That is utterly wrong. Verse 28 begins with rhetorical questions that assert you already know the answer. Verse 28 reminds you of what you already know. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is such. You already know these things. God is all-powerful in verse 28. He is the creator who is all-powerful. His understanding of you is unsearchably deep in verse 28. And in verse 29, God both knows your needs and he provides mightily. Look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to them who has no might, he increases strength. And the truth of verse number 30 is that natural resources fail. Verse 30, even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. If God has given you a naturally strong body, especially if you're young, praise him for that. But don't expect that to get you through life. Don't expect you get a pass on aging and suffering. God has so designed this life, young people, that you're going to need him. He knows this. He's aware of what you're going to face. And he wants to supply strength for what you're going to face. Maybe for what you're facing now. You know, sometimes as older people look at you, young people, and think, oh, you got the world by the tail. you got life so easy. And you're saying, you don't know the pressures I have being young. Look at verse number 31. This is for you. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. If you just need strength to get out of bed and face the day, God knows that. And God wants to provide that for you. As I said earlier on, uh, waiting on the Lord, they who wait for the Lord. Our purpose statement, our mission statement as a church includes this concept of waiting. What does that mean, to wait on the Lord? Let me tell you what the opposite of it is. Forging forward in your own strength. And we see examples of that in the Old Testament. Uh, you saw the kings of Israel, and, and they would face some enemy. And sometimes the king of Israel would just say, we've got 200,000, let's go get them. And they would fail. Other times they would say, they would call for the priest and the Urim and the Thummim, um, or they would call for the prophet, and they would say, beseech the Lord for us. Should we go or should we not go? And will we prevail? And the prophet would say either, no, you should not go, or the prophet would say, yes, you shall go, and yes, you shall prevail. That's waiting on the Lord. So you know what that looks like for you in the modern day? Uh, that, that looks like a Christian who's willing to accept the answer no from God. Where you say, God, I want this, and God's answer is no, and you are content with that. Sometimes his answer is no for now. But waiting on the Lord looks like a Christian who asks God and then accepts no for an answer. 
And while waiting on the Lord renews our strength, it gives you strength to face your challenges, at the end of the day, it's not going to be a scene where people look and say, oh man, what a strong person that is. At the end of the day, you're going to glorify God. You're going to accomplish things and get through things where you know and those close to you know and perhaps even the world knows. There's no way that could have happened. There's no way this could have survived without God's intervention. So look at those verbs in verse number 31. They renew their strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They run and they walk. Whatever God has for you, he will get you through that. He will give you the strength for the challenge that you are facing. So as we look at Isaiah 40, God is all-powerful. He's fully aware of you. And today's text reminds you to seek him and to wait on him for strength to accomplish for whatever he has for you to face. It reminds us of things we already know. God is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is incomprehensibly above all false gods, above all false substitutes for gods, and above all creation. He is infinite. He is infinite in his intrinsic value. He brings value to the table. False idols and false gods have nothing. You have to fabricate those. God fabricated you. <laughs> he is your creator. He invites us to forsake worthless idols that bring no value. Worthless idols that require your input and leave you as a hollow man at the end of the day, a hollow woman. So full of material possessions, they sit around and rot. They own you. So full of deviant sexual behavior outside the confines of marriage that you are a hollowed out soul, full of guilt and lacking in satisfaction. God created you. He empowers you. He provides for you. We see today that God needs none of us, but he loves all of us, and he invites us to walk with him. He invites us to wait on him as he answers prayers with his answers, but he answers prayer. I'm going to close now, and I'm going to ask you to spend just a minute or two in silence, praying silently before God. Things you might pray about. You might pray for direction or strength if you're facing something in your life and just ask God to work and accept his answer. Whether he impresses something on your heart or works through circumstances, accept his answer. You also might spend this time to repent of idols in your life in which you are seeking to find pleasure or meaning apart from God's will. If you need to put those things aside, there is victory. There is sanctification. So let's just spend a moment asking God for strength, for direction, or repenting of our false idols. Let's pray silently and then I'll close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you are our creator. Lord, you love every one of us, and your understanding of us is unsearchable. It is so vast. 
God, you know more about us and think more about us than we know about ourselves or think about ourselves. You do this as an act of love. You lovingly created us in your image. Able to fellowship with you. Father, sin has entered this world. There's judgment for sin. There's consequences of sin. And life is hard. I pray that you would give each one of us strength, Lord, to walk with you, to walk for you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our empty idols, our less than empty idols, for what they are. They are less than nothing. They are a liability. They drain life from us as your children. God, help us to repent of our idols. Help us to turn to, toward you. And Lord, might we find strength. Whether you want us to run or to walk, God, whatever challenge you have for us, I pray that you would just provide the strength, God. Help us to live for you day by day. And Lord, help us to remind ourselves of the things you already know. You are God. You are creator. You are powerful. You love us. And you work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would please stand together with Doug and myself. We're going to sing him.